Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip To The Movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod to find out more. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to episode nine of Just The Facts. Alex Zane here. Hope you're well. As always, a quick little bit of housekeeping before we get into this week's interview. You can follow us online on Twitter or Instagram at JTFpod. And also, as I always say, if you'd rather watch this interview instead of listening to it or do both, that is always an option. You can do both. You can listen to it now as this podcast, or if you really want to watch it, which is a great idea, by the way, you can find it on our YouTube channel, Just The Facts with Alex Zane, where it will be up in a few days' time. Right then, my guest today is a fantastic young writer, actor, and director who has a brand new play slash book slash film, all in the process of arriving on stage, page, and screen in the near future. So the book is called Instructions for a Teenage Armageddon, and it's based on a play which is going to be doing a run in theatre soon called Instructions for a Teenage Armageddon, which in turn is going to be a movie that is currently shooting called Instructions for a Teenage Armageddon. I have made that sound way more complicated than it is. My guest today will make it a lot less complicated and it sounds absolutely brilliant. But the book is the main thing because it's coming out very soon, October this year, Instructions for a Teenage Armageddon, and she's going to tell us all about it in a much, much simpler way. I don't know why I made that so complicated. Apologies, but there you go. That's how I've chosen to put it out there. Uh, also, she has built up an incredible, eclectic acting CV. She starred in horror. She starred in drama. She starred in a Hollywood comedy alongside Sarah Jessica Parker. And she's also been in numerous TV shows, including Outlander. So a lot but that is kind of to be expected when you begin your acting career at the tender age of four years old on stage at the National Theatre. It was an absolute pleasure having her on the show. So please welcome to Just The Facts, the wonderful Rosie Day. Uh, Rosie Day, hello. 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 Um, we were just talking about your five cats. That seems like a lot of cats. It does. Um, an actress gave me a cat as a present. And, uh, 
uh, as the cat was being handed over and the door was being closed, uh, it was like, wait, she might be pregnant. And the cat gave birth during lockdown and so nobody could come and see the kittens. And then obviously we spent all our time with these cats and now they're just our pack. So there was never a plan to give them away. You 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 just got attached to them, I guess. Yeah, like we because we couldn't have people around to come and like see them and you know kind of put them up for you know adoption as you would. So no, they just um they stayed and now we have our family of cats that live with us. And my sister is like deathly allergic to cats, so she can't come around my house anymore. It's it's not great. What? How does she feel about that? That seems like you've lost a sister and gained five cats. Found out on Christmas Day, and um, I can't say it went down particularly well. Um, my mum had bought me all these like cat toys, but we hadn't actually told my sister that we had we got a cat, so um, it, didn't, it didn't go down great. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> okay, so how how on earth does one break the news that uh, <laughs> that one of your closest relatives is no longer going to be able to attend your residence? My mum did it. <laughs> <laughs> They've got a cat, um, yeah, and it didn't. It didn't. I'm not. Yeah, it really didn't go down well. But um, now, but she really likes them. She can come and like stand at the door and kind of see them for like like ten minutes, and then she can't because she can't breathe. It's weird. Like I was allergic to cats as a kid, and then it, it just went away. Maybe it'll go away. It'll go away. Maybe if she has more exposure to them, it'll be like it'll it'll disappear. Yeah, it'll desensitize her. I mean, like, I, I don't think either of us are medical professionals, so I, I, I should prefix this with the advice we're giving right now is not medical advice. But yeah, you spend enough time with cats and your allergy goes away. Exactly. Um, so listen, you've got so much going on uh, right now, which we can, we're, we're going to get into, but I, I thought we'd start at the beginning, which for you really is the beginning. Like it, four years old, am I right, that you, you began acting? It's stupid, isn't it? When you say that. Um, I have a four-year-old in my life now, not my four-year-old, my friend's four-year-old. And then I look at her and I'm like, why would you ever put her on the stage? She's so <laughs> tiny. Um, but yeah, no, I was, I was four and a half. My first job was at, was at the National Theatre. Um, I don't know if I'm the youngest person to ever work there, but I probably was the youngest person that could like talk. I think I might've had some babies, but um, yeah, I, I was, I was four and a half and, and, yeah, it, they're like my earliest memories are sort of running around the national, which is a bit weird. So you do remember them? Because I was when I found that out, I was thinking back, going, "What do I do? I have a memory from four years? I think maybe Lego. I remember I had some Lego, but that's it. I can remember this. It was a play called Summer Folk with Simon Russell Beale, and I can remember the play. I can remember going on stage. I can remember doing the job. I can remember eating. I only ate like rice and ketchup in the canteen. That's why I ate for dinner every day. Um, so, so sorry, you're going to have to pause there. What now? Rice and ketchup. So I still to this day am a ketchup addict, like with everything. Um, I just used to eat plain boiled rice that they had in the cafeteria and just sachets of ketchup. Okay. And, and I mean, you're a ketchup fan still. That's, that's fine. A lot of people are ketchup fans. Would you still put ketchup on rice? Is this a... What? What? I mean, I'm not joking, not sweet things, but all like I am known to have like ketchup with my roast dinner. Like it's that, it's that level. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. I mean, look, I'm, you, you know what, that exp the expression that I'm pulling right now is make, it makes it look like I find this weird. Um, it really does. It's cool. Yeah. I mean, of course, other people must have talked to you about this. It, it can't, I can't be the first person to go, sorry, what now? No, everybody goes, that's disgusting. <laughs> I like it. It's how I like my food. Hey, and this this interview is not it's not even an interview. I'm not here to judge. I, you know, I'm accepting of all all weird food habits, um, which which this is pretty high. But okay, so you remember running around the National Theatre eating rice and ketchup. But do you remember actually thinking, "Hey, I quite like this acting lark." I remember thinking, "Hey, I quite like missing this, not having to go to school." <laughs> <laughs> that was, I think, because when I was little, it was my sister. So my big sister was one of those all singing, all dancing, annoying children. And she got uh, cast in that play and also a TV series. And they needed a little sister for her. And I sort of ended up along for the ride. I think a casting director asked me 
I'd come to like an audition and, and, and she said, oh, would you do some acting for us, Rosie? And my mum said that I went, no, acting stupid. Why would I want to do that? Like, I just had no interest in it. And I think my mum explained that I got to miss school and I really wasn't like into school at all. So I was like, I'm in, count me in. That's, um, that's a young age to start. And yet, like, it didn't stop there. I mean, was there a, was there a point where you, you caught the bug and it stopped being about missing school and started being like, actually, this is, this is something I quite like. Yeah, I was, I was about, well, I was about 10 when I used to, I did a TV show called Burner's Watch, which was like a kid's show about a boy who could stop time. And that was when I was playing like a really mean girl in it. And that was when I was like, oh no, this is fun. Like the idea of creating a character and getting to be someone else. Up until that point, you just kind of get cast as people's children, I guess. Um, and so that was probably like the moment that I was like, oh, this is a thing. Acting is like a, a thing that you can kind of do. Um, so that was probably the, that's when my mum says anyway, that I was like, oh no, I, I want to be an actor. This is, this is fun. That's interesting. Cause I think I, I remember hearing that you really like playing unlikable characters. And so the first character that you played when you actually fell in love with acting was itself an unlikable character. Oh yeah. She was very, very horrible. Um, so yeah, I think, I think unlikable characters are far more, are far more interesting. Uh, by the way, I've just noticed a wonderful selection of spirits behind you. I, I hadn't clocked that at the moment. That's uh, that's that's some collection you've got going on there. I don't drink at all. Um, I, I hate the taste of alcohol. So these all belong to my partner, who I promise is not an alcoholic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that you did as a kid, and I don't know whether you remember this. I'm sure you must uh, do if you remember being at the National at four years old. But you were in one of my favorite sketch shows of all time, uh, which is I always chew Simon Pegg's ear off uh, about how good this show was and how much I miss it. I think it, it had two seasons, which is Big Train. Big Train, literally. Yeah, I... Um, that was, so, I remember that so clearly cause it was so much fun. Cause I got to do, it was a spoof on the raging bull thing. So I was playing, um, De Niro's character with the gloves and was like getting to be on a boxing ring and kind of punch lots of big guys. And I was teasing, I think I was about eight when I did like that one and I was so, so little. And then, yeah. And I was working with Rebecca Front who played my mum, who I then worked with again, about three years ago and kind of got to know really well as an adult, which was like a really weird thing. Cause I was like, I worked with you as a kid and now we're still here. Um, but yes, no, I, it was, it was really, really funny and really, I remember really enjoying, enjoying that one. And that still, that still gets brought up. People often talk about that, that one um, to me. Being on stage, like from four onwards, did it really normalize the experience of getting on stage? Like, do you now when you, I mean, obviously you've done, you've done a play recently, which we'll talk about, but do you, do you get nervous or is it, is it because you've been doing it for your entire life? Do you just sort of go, yeah, I know this. I, I, I got this. I found theater. So I did a lot of theater as a kid, probably because I was about like 11. And then I didn't do any until I was about 21 and kind of through various I don't know how to describe it, slightly uh, uppity people was told because I didn't go to drama school that I couldn't do theatre as an adult. And that was very much something that was like forced into me, into my brain, thinking I wasn't good enough essentially to be on stage as an adult because I hadn't had that training. And it was only when I started working with a director called Hannah Price who was like, you can totally do theatre. What are you talking about? Like, that's nonsense that I kind of recently have got back into it. And yeah, it absolutely terrifies me, but in the best way. It's like the best adrenaline rush that you can kind of ever have. But I genuinely had about a 10 year break from, from doing it um, just because that's the way what the industry was sort of telling me. Um, yeah. But now it's like my favorite thing in the world. That's crazy. So there really is. I, it's weird that you say that. My guest last week um, on the show was uh, saying a, a similar thing, that there is actually a snobbery in the industry, uh, not only about whether you went to drama school, but then on top of that, which drama school you went to. And you better not be a child actor growing up because, oh, that's, uh, that's you know, that has its own sort of stigma um, around it, really. And I think if you haven't then gone and trained people kind of, yeah, people, I don't know what they think. Because, you know, when you've grown up on a set, you kind of just learn... I learned how to act from watching other actors. That was sort of kind of how I, how I did it. And I think that's a quite a unique, but quite a cool way to kind of do it. And then, you know, it's all about, I think it's all about the directors that you work with. If you work with really kind of creative, brilliant, open directors, then, then anything's sort of possible. It's just, I think the very traditional people are 
like you have to go to RADA to be a national now. Like, yeah. So, I mean, so that was like your late teens, early, early 20s when that was happening. Do you think that's changed now? The industry has changed or does, does that kind of, that snobbery about drama school still exist? I think, I think we're definitely sort of paving the way for change in the industry as a whole and being far more kind of inclusive and sort of, you know, giving lots of people a lot more opportunities. But I definitely think that there is still a snobbery and it's theatre is a very protected club. Like the, you know, the people that get seen for the auditions at kind of the Don Mar and the National and the, you know, and that's sort of the same sort of people that get brought in and you kind of have to work your way into that club still, um, which is, is, is really, uh, which is really difficult to break into, I think. So, yeah, no, I do, I do think we, we still kind of have that opinion and that snobbery around it. Yeah, I mean, it's weird because there was that, there was that whole conversation recently about how it is, um, you know, it's kind of an exclusive club. Like to be able to go to drama school in the first place is uh, is a privilege, like that not everyone can uh, can have, and so it results in, I guess, uh, a certain kind of a person who ends up being uh, an actor. Uh, you know, depending on your background and whether you can uh, is the word afford, but be in a position, let's say, where you can experience that. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and if not, it's whether you can kind of fundraise, you know, you see kids that are having to, you know, fundraise online just to try and get to drama school. And I think that's really, really sad. And I know drama schools have kind of been reworked over the past sort of year or so and are going through a big overhaul, which is great. But um, yeah, it's, it, it's, I think it still is a sort of club that, that a lot of people are kind of locked out of still. Hopefully that will change. <laughs> So what do you, apart from obviously a character being uh, fundamentally unlikable, which is brilliant, uh, what do you look for uh, when a script sort of lands in your lap? And, and what, what, are the, what are the things about it that make you go, yep, that's, that, that is for me? It's usually, I mean, I think most have sense, but it's like the story, whether the story's been told before and the writing. I think all of great filmmaking and kind of TV is in, in the text. And usually I get a script and I go, okay, who's going to get cast in this? That's not me. That's generally the first thing I do, which is probably a really bad habit. I think of all the kind of other actors before me, they're like, oh, they'll probably get that. They'd be really good for that role. Um, I should probably be a casting director instead. Um, and then, yeah, you, yeah, I mean, it's all down to, for me, I think as a woman, it's like, how are the female characters written? Like, are, you know, um, is it kind of our story or like a female story? Um, and whether, you know, really, if, if it's just a kind of story that's worth telling, um, really. And, and for me, yeah, it's all in the writing and kind of whether there's something that I think that's interesting about it. But also it's, it's whether you're like, do you, do you know, do you think it's reasonable that you're going to get this job? And then you can kind of get excited um, about it, you know, if you think it's sort of plausible. Because, you know, sometimes you get sent scripts that you're like you know, that Spielberg are directing and you're like, oh, I wish, like, that's kind of how it, <laughs> that's kind of how my brain works. So, I mean, you talk about the, the, the fact that, uh, you know, how, how the female characters written. So do you think that's changing at the moment? So we're here in 2021. Have you noticed that the roles that, and the scripts that you are being sent have improved in the quality of the way the female characters are written? I would say yes, um, for sure. But I would also say they are predominantly written by men. That was a really good, I think the Guardian did an exploration to that and it's still like 12% uh, of scripts are written by women and they're, they're original stories, they're not adaptations. Um, so no, they're usually written by men still. And But yeah, I would definitely say that there's a conscious effort to try and tell women stories, but it's not often women who get the chance to tell those stories, um, which is kind of with me because I played a lot of teenagers growing up and so often it was written by like, a 50 year old white man and the teenage girl would be so badly written that you'd just be like, because, because they have no experience of it. And it's not to say you can't write something that you don't have experience of, because of course you can, but it's always the very stereotypical kind of trope that they often go down. So you'd say like, so there is a marked difference. I, I'd imagine there would be, but not reading scripts. Um, I, I, I couldn't say for sure, but I imagine there is a marked difference between a female character written by a female writer compared to one written by a man. Yeah, absolutely. There's just there's an honesty to it that I think that um, that you just get when it is your own sort of lived experience when you have been a young woman, um, rather than kind of somebody imagining it um, in a way. And you know the amount of stuff. You know, I, I've only just stopped playing teenagers, but you know every teenage girl character description was like ridiculously beautiful. You know, that was always in the character description. You're like, why can't you just have a teenage girl that just looks like a you know 
a girl and who's just, you know, that hasn't got to be emotionally distressed or incredibly sarcastic or troubled or, you know, you know, hating their parents. That's kind of, that's the other one that used to drive me up the wall. I really liked my parents growing up. So yeah, character description. There should be a podcast in itself where someone just reads character descriptions of, of women over, over history. I think that's worth it. <laughs> Um, so over your career, and this 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 is for me because I, I really think uh, every actor uh, needs on their CV at least one good death scene, and you have collected a fair few over your career. I have. That's the that's the the fun of doing horror movies. You mm. often get to die. And <laughs> um, I, I want to go through some of them. So, because uh, <laughs> they're great and they are really. When, when I was sort of writing them down in a prose form, I was like, that just reads like a good death scene. Yeah. So, uh, Good Omens, for example. So, you did Good Omens. This is only recently. We love, we love Neil Gaiman. I only got that job because I met him at an award show and sort of befriended him. Um, and because and I'm one of his like biggest fans. And then that kind of came about that way. And I'd worked with the director before and essentially just harassed them to be in it. And it worked. How, how was he? Uh, I, uh, weirdly, I did a, a Q&A for um, American Gods, the, uh, the show. Uh, yeah. But unfortunately, he couldn't be there. And I was like, you know, when you're sort of trying to put a brave face on things. But when I got there and they were like, yeah, sorry, Neil's not going to be here. I'm like, oh, come on, man. What part of the reason I'm here. Uh, but how was he when you met him? He's the kindest man. He's just so lovely. I was, yeah, he was so, so lovely to me. And, you know, we exchange tweets sometimes on Twitter and he's a really, yeah, he's a, he's a really, really, a really good egg. Yeah, he is. He is. Um, so your death uh, in Good Omens, uh, was he there that day when you were shooting? Because I know he was the showrunner on it. No, 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 he wasn't. No. Oh, well, either way, I just wondered whether he was going. And now you get engulfed by a billion maggots who eat your flesh, who then turn into the Antichrist. Yeah, cash. Standard day at the office, literally. Literally standard day at the office as she got eaten to death by maggots. They had, they, so the, there was only one maggot on set that day, but it was in my headphone. I had like a little, you know, the Britney-like mic. And, and, it, and it wouldn't do what it was supposed to do. So I just had to sit there probably for about 15 minutes while they tried to get the shot of this maggot wiggling out of my mouthpiece, just trying not to gag. Because they smell, they really smell. So that's one death scene, brilliant death scene uh, for poor Lisa in the call centre. Uh, next, so uh, this is a director, I guess, would you call yourself one of his players? Because you've made three movies with Paul Hyatt. So Paul gave me my first ever film and, and I guess we kind of, we, we kind of have that sort of like connection because, you know, he, he kind of gave me a movie that, that kind of really helped my career, I guess. Um, and so, yes, we, we've made a fair few horror films together. And mm. are you going to say Howl, the werewolf film? Yep. Where I get flung from a train and my neck gets eaten by a werewolf. Paul Hyatt comes from special effects, so he is incredibly talented. And so that piece, I genuinely did that. Like my neck had been ripped out, and my stomach. They did my stomach as well. It was, um, yeah, it was a, it was very gory. And I did have to hang upside down in a tree. It's a movie that looks um, beyond its budget for that exact reason. That you know, the the special effects on it are are fantastic. The poor woman's leg when they're pulling back the bandage and she's been infected on the train. It's like that's really really good prosthetics. It's it's one of those films where I don't know. We watched it, I think it was at the premiere, and lots of people found it funny. And I don't think the film was ever intended to be funny, but has now sort of taken on a life of its own where it's like this horror comedy. But I'm pretty sure that's not what anybody ever intended it for. <laughs> Yeah, werewolves. It's. I mean, I I watched it because I I love a werewolf movie. Um, and it's it is it's a really it's one of those deaths. Your death in it. It's really dark because you think that your character is dead. You sort of get dragged out of a train window, disappear onto the roof, and you hear screams. But it's the fact that we come back to you later, still alive, being eaten alive. It's ridiculous, isn't it? What what we get paid to do it really is. And then it's a, it's a, it's a, another Paul Hyatt joint um, that is a, a, another fantastic death. Which I, I think the film's changed names now because it was called the Convent, and then when I was watching it on Amazon, it's called Heretics. Uh, yes, no, so it was called Heretics originally, and then I think 
they changed it to the convent for so people knew what it was about. I can't say I've ever seen that one. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say, but I had a really bad time filming that film. It was really was not um, was not a pleasant experience. So um, I think I've sort of um, I, I was like, I'm not going to watch it back. I actually can't remember how I die. How do I die in that film? I can tell you how you die. And why? But why? But why wasn't it a pleasant experience? It was just one of those things where it, it was sort of. Um, it was incredibly chaotic and there were some not very nice people on the job. Um, you just, we were down in Wales and it rained the whole time we were there at Christmas. So it was like minus, I don't know, gosh, like minus five or something. And I just remember being really, really, um, really not very, uh, uh, happy on it. Um, because yeah, I think because of that, it was just, it was not, um, I like, I like, like, I like to work with, you know, really kind, happy people. And I think sometimes as a young woman, when you're on a set and you're made, you can sometimes be made to feel quite uncomfortable. It can really sort of affect how you, you view a job. And that is probably actually genuinely probably my least favorite job. Actually, that I've done. Um, yeah. So I've not watched it. So I can't remember how I die. Wow. Well, I'm really pleased I brought it up. How do I die? Uh, you die because you become possessed by a demon who causes you to stab yourself in the heart. And then when you are um, repossessed by this demon, you have your head chopped off and placed on a spike. Well, I know I remember, yes, I remember filming the spike. I remember filming having my head on a spike. Yes, but I don't remember killing myself and how funny. I must have blocked a lot of it out, clearly. Um, clearly, but um, wow, that's, that's, that's gory. So those are my favourite three deaths of yours. Uh, um, thank you for going through them with me. That was uh, that was a pleasure. But you mentioned um, that your very first movie was with Paul Hyatt, uh, which you you got a great uh, number of plaudits for your performance in, which was the Seasoning House. Yeah, it was. Um, it was that again. I mean, it was a very dark film, but it was based on a true story set in the Balkan War about young girls being prostituted by the military and sort of used as as pawns. And I was playing this kind of uh, this deaf. Uh, character who kind of helped in this house essentially, um, and yeah, it was a it, it was an amazing experience. It was a, that was it was quite a tough shoot. I think we shot it in like a month and a half, um, and I was doing my A levels at the same time. Um, but it was um, it was really really cool. Like it was a really cool experience, kind of to to have. And I kind of got to learn sign language, and and you know I think about that quite a lot now because I don't think if that film was made now they would they, they would cast a deaf actress. Um, to play that character and rightly so you know that we shot that over 10 years ago now so um, I kind of often think about that um, that how I kind of how I ended up doing that role and in terms of it being your feature debut were you sitting waiting for the right role to come in or was it just a coincidence that that role came in at the right time it was just one of those things where I I was at school and I think they'd seen like 150 girls or something. And I was one of the last girls to go in for it. And my agent at the time actually hadn't read the script for it. Um, so I didn't know how dark it was. And it wasn't until he came to the premiere that he was like, wow, yeah, that <laughs> maybe should have read that script for you. Um, I was I was under 18. So I really didn't think they were going to cast me because I thought, you know, for like legal reasons, they'd have to cast like, you know, an 18 year old that looked young, you know, as, as they often do. But no, they did. They did pick me and it was... Um, it was, yeah, I mean, it was very, very, it was very, very fun. I did a lot of my own stunts. I kept coming home with like more bruises and scratches. They had a stunt double, but I was like, let me do it. So yeah, no, it was very, it, it was really, really, I had a great time shooting it. Well, you, you talk about your age and, uh, you know, it is, uh, it's a bleak film with, which deals with some very dark themes and, and you're 16 at the time. Yeah. And then you go back to school and you're like sat in, you know, English. <laughs> which is like, I remember my first day back and I was like, this is very different to what I've just been doing for the past month and a half. Um, yeah, it's, you know, that it, it was, uh, it was definitely, I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, sexual violence in it. And I think looking back on it now, where I am now in my life, you kind of go, that was probably a lot to process at 16 when you're kind of watching actors, you know, portray rape or something like that. That was probably quite, um, probably did have an effect on me I think moving forward in my life because that's something that you don't often see as a as a kind of 16 year old <laughs> uh, but you did get to work with Sean Pertwee who is a freaking oh, legend he is 
a legend. He is the loveliest guy. And he was so kind to me. He was so lovely. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So supportive. Yeah, um, he's in one of my favorite uh, movies of all time. I say my favorite movies of all time. I, I have a lot of love for this movie. I feel that if I say it's one of my favorite movies of all time, people go, uh-huh, really? But um, Event Horizon... Uh, the, it's, a, it's a sci-fi horror. Anyway, I bumped into Sean in a bar once, and I literally, you know, when I, you know, when you're like, I walked away, and the following day I went, I think I was that guy because I just plonked myself next to him and chewed his ear off about Event Horizon and everything that he knew about it. I loved that though. I would <laughs> be a fan. I think I'm such a fan girl of so many things and so many people. I think it's, I think it's a positive quality. Well, we've talked about horror, and uh, I mean, I don't know whether the term fangirl uh, um, uh, uh, is relevant to this, but you did get to work with uh, a great comic actress in the form of Sarah Jessica Parker um, on um, All Roads Lead to Rome. So were you a fan of Sex in the City before working with her? So that was a job that I went for the audition I was like, well, I'm never going to get it. Like, I'm never going to get that job. And my mum turned around in the kitchen and went to me, well, don't go to the audition then. But I did go to the audition and I did obviously get the job. And so no, hadn't, hadn't seen Sex in the City, but obviously knew what a legend she was. Um, and I remember meeting her for the first time and like, I was shaking just because I was like, oh my God. Um, and then literally had the best three months of my life ever in that job because... We were in Rome together and we just had, it was just magical. She's a, she's a, a really incredible woman who is incredibly kind and incredibly just kind of wonderful. And, and, and that probably I think will always be one of my favorite jobs for the rest of my life. So at the audition, did you sort of walk out thinking, actually, you know what? I think I did pretty good, pretty good in there. I could do the character really well. Like I was like, I could play her. It's just, I didn't think I looked like Sarah Jessica Parker. And also like it was an American movie and it just didn't, I just was like, I don't think that that's ever going to happen. And I actually got told by my agent's assistant that I hadn't got it. About a week later, I had a phone call. I was nannying um, some little kids and he, this agent Humphrey phoned and was like, you've not got the job. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Then about three days later on a Saturday, my agent phoned and was like, you booked the job. And I was like, oh, he told me I hadn't got it. My agent was like, no, no, we were just, we hadn't heard. We were just waiting. So I told I hadn't got it. And then my agent phoned on a Saturday and was like, you've got the job. Um, and I was drying my hair. And I was, I remember literally putting the phone down and just being like shell shocked by it. Of course you remember exactly where you are. That must be one of those moments where you're like, this, this is a, this is a big one. This is a game changer. <laughs> I think as an actor, they always say like the best day of the job is the day you get the job. I think, but you remember, you know, I have those moments where I can remember where I was um, at the time and, 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 and their, you know, their memories that are so like kind of um, 
like etched in your mind. I had one day and it's only happened once where I booked two jobs on the same day. And that I think probably has to count as one of the best days of my life because it's like you book two jobs on the same day, uh, which never happens ever. Wow. B- big jobs as well. Yeah. One of them was Outlander. Um, so that oh, was like, wow. it was a good day. It was a good day. Because uh, we had um, we had Sam on the show not that long ago. Because so so you worked with him on uh, on a film before Outlander. We worked on a film together. He just booked Outlander, and then he was going away to film after we shot. And we were in uh, the Lafferton Islands, which is the very top of the Arctic Circle, where it's light twenty four hours a day, um, shooting this kind of very quirky Henrik Ibsen sort. Of film um and so we spent we got to know each other really well because we spent all of our time kind of together the kind of key actors and um and he it was on that that he he had just finished reading the second book and he went to me if there is a second series there's a character that you will play so well you know if, if that happens and then cut to i think it was about 18 months later i was playing that character and he swears he had nothing to do with that like decision but i mean i, I don't know but he is he 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 is one of the kindest men I love him he's just he's just wonderful isn't he and that's and you know whether he did or didn't it's nice that he says he didn't yeah I know isn't it like he, he he's like oh no I'll let you have it off your own merit but no like he but that's I think Sam all over I think he's in, he's so generous he's so lovely and that show is such a you know iconic thing now like it was because I did the second series where it was kind of it you know had a huge families but kind of hadn't quite expanded into what it is now which is you know something kind of kind of on a global scale. Yeah, have you um, have you had experiences of the fans because when we when we did the interview with Sam it just exploded because like the the fan base for that show is incredible. I did a couple of like comic con things um which was um which was which was amazing to me. I've never done anything like that where you kind of you get to meet people and they are so passionate and they know everything. And and you know they knew way more than I did about, you know, I'd read the book but I hadn't I didn't know you know, the level that they knew and they're so, you know, it's, it's, it was the first time I think I'd ever been in anything that had a fan base. And so getting to experience that where they like make you presents and like give you things. And it's, you know, it's, it's a lovely thing. Wow. It must be scary though. Like what, cause obviously like you're in it. So I guess to them, you have a duty to know everything. And so when they go, but obviously this, in, and do you like this happens in this book and you're like, yeah, I know that. Or do you come clean and go, I, I actually don't know anything outside what I've just done. Q&A I came clean and admitted that I had never watched it and that was not the, the smartest thing that I'd ever done simply because I don't ever watch things that I do generally like I just hate watching myself I think it's weird um so I just had, had never had never kind of got into the show and watched it um and yeah that you probably shouldn't admit that in like room full of like a thousand outlander fans <laughs> That's interesting though. So you don't watch stuff you do. I, I, I mean, I, I just, I always imagine that. So on the set, when you, when you're performing, for example, if it's a TV show or a, or a film, do you just know there and then sort of go, I think that's good. I got that. I nailed that. Or cause I, I just imagine watching it back could be a research tool for going, ah, I'm doing that. And I don't want to do that. Yeah, that is certainly true. I think on set, as I've got older, you certainly have the instinct as to whether you nailed it. But I think the more I've sort of lent to the other side of the camera, a lot of your performance is down to the edit and how they choose to edit what you've done. And so I try not to think about that kind of too much. You kind of can do your best and then you kind of give it into the hands of other people, which is why I kind of love theater because you kind of have a more, much more control over what you're, you're doing, I guess. Um, whereas I think TV and film, there's so many extraneous circumstances. Um, so yeah, there are definitely, there are certain things that I have watched and kind of, you know, you, you sort of, you have to end up watching bits because of when you have to put a show reel together as an actor. So you have to kind of look through things um, and find things that you like and that you don't like. When I was little, I used to raise my eyebrows an awful lot. So that's something that I've had to rein back in. There's a lot of eyebrow acting going on. So this job, All Roads Lead to Rome, Sarah Jessica Parker, I, you filmed it in Italy. Is that part of the reason it's one of the best experiences you've had? Because I've seen it and it looks like, you know, just an amazing place to travel around. For three months. And pretty much we used to go out to eat and restaurants, obviously she'd never, she would never expect it, but most restaurants demanded that we ate for free at their restaurant. So um, yeah, it was, it was just a really lovely 
period of, of, of time. Um, you know, well, we would have got dinner and then there'd probably be about 11 different moments in the evening where you'd, I'd have to be like the photographer to take photos of people because, you know, um, you know, in Europe, she is just massive. I mean, she is everywhere, but, you know, I think people weren't expecting her to be in Italy. So it was, um, but that was interesting to kind of be on that side of things where, I experienced like paparazzi and like what that, how anxiety inducing that is to kind of be with somebody that is followed constantly. That was, I think a real good life lesson um, for me. There were certain moments where we were like cycling around with bikes and people were chasing us and it was not, not, not fun. Um, yeah. So like, what did you take from that? Like I'd, I'd rather never be in that position. Yeah. That position. Cause it is one of the things where, we, were, we went to visit the Pope one Sunday. He was giving a speech and we were in the middle of the Vatican Square and people started to clock that she was there and everyone started. And we were, and I mean, there's thousands of people in the square. And we were like, how are we going to get, how are we going to get out of this? Like it was, it was, it was, there was moments because we're both very small. Like we were both petite and you were just there like, I can't protect her and we're going to get mobbed. Um, so I remember that being something that I was like, I don't think I could ever handle that. And she is so, she is so gracious about it all, but I don't think I could uh, live, live like that. Wow. I mean, that sounds, that does sound terrifying crowd. I mean, surely that she has people like security people going, we've got to get Sarah out of here. No, 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 absolutely not. It was just us two. Um, yeah. She, I think she lives a very normal life. And I think because she lives in New York, everybody knows she's there and she's left alone most of the time. Um, no, there was no, there was no security. It was just, <laughs> just two small people. How did you get out just to put my mind at ease? Um, this is really stupid. We ended up speaking in like a fake language and pretending it wasn't her and getting out that way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well done. I do like the idea of everyone being in Vatican Square and uh, the Pope being on his little balcony and people going, yeah, but Sarah <laughs> Jessica Parker's over there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And bringing us sort of, I, I guess, more up to date. So please tell me this book isn't out because otherwise I haven't done my due diligence. It's not out. It's not out. October. October when? The 14th? October 14th. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. I can relax now. Yes. No, you're all right. Okay, good. Right. Well, let's get into it then. So this is now, you, tell me if I've got the order wrong. So this was a, a play that then you've turned into a book that is now being made into a film called Instructions for a Teenage Armageddon. Yeah, you got it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did, we did a preview run of this play that I'd written as a joke that I didn't think anyone was ever going to see. And then randomly ended up um, getting put on, um, which was essentially all about a teenage girl's experience and wanting to put them front and center because so often in theater, teenage girls are side parts and the stories don't revolve around them and sort of their lives. Um, so we did a preview run and then we were meant to go back on somewhere else and then COVID happened. Um, so we are going on again, but not right, not until theater is fully kind of, you know, back. And then, but it was when we were doing that um, preview run that I was introduced to my now literary agents at WME um, that sort of said, how would you feel about doing um, a book? Do you know, uh, uh, turning this into a sort of nonfiction guide for teenage girls to how to survive their teenage years and how to get through them. So that's what we uh, ended up doing over, over lockdown was that we wrote this, this book and kind of created this thing. And then kind of, I don't quite know how it happened, but then there is now a film. And I don't, I don't know how, I can't remember how that process came about, but, um, we ended up, we've been filming this, this, this sort of, um, hybrid feature version of, of the play, which is really exciting. So the play and the book share a title, but the, the play is a work of fiction where, whereas the book is, is partly written by you and, and, uh, you've curated it as well. Yeah. So we have so, so it's like an entire guide that has lots of different sections. So we have, you know, uh, uh, so we have contributors writing about different topics from like, mental health to um, body image to, you know, staying safe to boundaries, to consent to all these kind of important topics. And then we have sections that are like 10 top tips for surviving certain experiences that you'll have and uh, kick-ass profiles of women of note that we think everyone should know about. And it's all in this sort of big bundle of guide of female empowerment, hopefully. Fingers crossed. That sounds great. So did, did, who did you uh, approach or are you not allowed to say at the moment? How did, and how did you approach them? Gosh, that was really, do you know what I found? Everyone that was approached about it was so lovely and kind. 
and was so open. And the real issue was, and I don't mind saying this, was people's agents that in the way, people's teams. <laughs> they, and it was really interesting as an actor because obviously you only have your agent as an actor that you deal with on an acting side of thing. And then suddenly when you're approaching agents going, could you ask so-and-so? And you sort of see the other side of things for the first time. Like I got to see how agents work and, 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 you know, some people had absolutely lovely, brilliant agents that were so great. And other people had agents who were, you know, not so nice. And that was really interesting. And I think it's as an actor, that's kind of interesting to know how you're represented when people approach uh, uh, your agent about about things. Um, so yeah, we approach so like we've got like Sarah because Sarah Pascoe's written an essay, and um, people like um, we've got a lot of uh, so Summer Sarah who created Everyone's Invited, which is the uh, campaign to stop um, rape culture in schools. We've got a lot of um, activism within the book, kind of because the whole thing is centered around like empowering teenage girls to know that they can change the world and they can do what they want with their lives. Um, so that's kind of how that, that came about, but no, everyone that we approached was so kind and lovely once we got to them, <laughs> that's what I'm saying, once we got through. So like, that is, that is, I mean, it's kind of scary for some people if they are not aware that their agent is being difficult without their consent. Yeah, that is, I think that's something that, and I don't think as an actor you ever, you never get to experience that because certainly I don't, obviously, because I have my team but like you know you you only deal with them when they're talking to you you don't know how that whole thing kind of plays out behind the scenes and it was quite i'm not gonna lie it was kind of intimidating as an actor approaching agents in a different realm that wasn't anything to do with acting going i'm doing this book would you you know pass this on to onto your client and like i said you know some was just so wonderful and brilliant and you're like yay we love you and then others were could be quite tricky um yeah it's weird because i mean you would normally be uh, protected from that by your agent. For example, they'd be the one sort of approaching people on your behalf and you, there's a buffer between you and that experience. Yeah, exactly. Whereas all of a sudden it's like your frontline and center going, hi, it's Rosie. Could you, could, could you pass this idea onto, onto your client? And um, I think it, it's interesting. I think a lot of actors are quite scared of their agents because, you know, they get us work and they're the people that, um, you know, that sort of are the gatekeepers to our livelihood. And so there's a real kind of intimidation about it. And that's certainly something I felt growing up, you know, as a young woman in this industry is, is, is how agents treat you and kind of how you feel about them. And um, something that I try to remind like younger actors, like or the people, older actors have reminded me that you pay them. They technically, agents work for you. And it's something, and that power balance, I think is, can be really uh, rocky when it comes to younger actors. I think as an actor, you have no, you have very little power in this industry other than what you say yes or no to in terms of work, and 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 you can often end up feeling very unempowered. And 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 I think having the right people around you is probably the most important thing that you can can do. And if you're lucky enough to find them, I think think that's that's really important. So what constitutes, what, what were they doing? Were they asking, for, was it money? Were they going, is there a fee for this book? Yeah, so, so everyone was paid or they could have their money donated to a charity of their choice or STEM4, which is the teenage mental health charity the book is uh, giving some of its profits to. Um, and so, so yeah, so lots of people came back asking for more money, which is, you know, you expect our babies, that is their job at the end of the day. Um, and then some people were just a bit rude or ignored you for ages and then, or, or like replied and then just ghosted you. Um, so yeah, you know, it was a real, it was a real kind of learning curve, but you know, there was equally as, as many brilliant ones that were incredibly, incredibly supportive and really got behind the message of, of the book, which was, which was really lovely, but it was scary emailing agents. It's terrible to me. That's terrifying. <laughs> I think you'll approach people. I, I listen, I, we're, we're on the same page about that because obviously, you know, I, I, I'm booking people for uh, for this podcast directly. So for the first time in my life, instead of someone going, hey, uh, you know, you just have to be here at this time. I'm sort of like, hey, can I, uh, could you, would they be interested in coming on? So a big, big shout out to CLD and Claire Dobbs because <laughs> they were lovely. <laughs> so lovely. That's something that I think as I'm older, I keep saying to people that I sound like a broken record, but... I just want to work with kind people. Like that is my priority. Nice, kind people that, you know, that want to make nice work. That's, that's kind of like my only level of, of in terms of what I want to do, just because I think industry has still got a very long way to go in terms of kind of, you know, 
looking after women and just you know and people in general you know i think there's a, there's a lot of good in this industry and there's a lot of bad and we're slowly rooting out the bad um but for my sanity i only want to work with with nice people is that is that achievable i mean just you know playing devil's advocate you know a role comes along that is like oh, this is a dream role but you have knowledge of a, a situation where someone is working on it who has a bad reputation. How do you weigh that up? Would you still take the ball? Would you go, look, my mantra is my mantra. I cannot in good conscience do this and go through that experience. If I've heard bad things about someone and genuinely serious bad things, I, I wouldn't take the role. I, I've gone through, I've lived through too many experiences on set where I've had bad experiences with people um, that had like affected my mental health, that I, I value that more than a job. Now, I think having peace inside you is more important than any, any role. And, and, and what you're doing by, by continuing to work with these people is they're continually getting jobs and working. And it's only when you, you, everyone stops and goes, we're not working with you anymore because what you've done is, is, is bad that those people then have to leave the industry. Um, and, and I think that's something that we sort of have to make, you know, make a change and, and, and do, and I'm certainly part of, I want to be part of the, the change. Well, I mean, you mentioned um, you're an ambassador for STEM4, um, which is, uh, in case anyone doesn't know, it's, it's uh, about supporting uh, teenage mental health. Yes, yeah, so it's support and preventing teenage mental health uh, issues and all about education. So we go around schools and we talk to kids, usually from about 13 to 16, educating them on mental health. Um, and yeah, the work they do is kind of unparalleled. Like we have like eight apps and like all these, you know, different amazing tools that they can find online to, to kind of help with teenage mental health. Because right now it is in a very bad place because we have a government that doesn't fund uh, mental health properly. <laughs> And do you think it's got worse? I mean, we're obviously different ages, but from when, from when I was a teenager uh, and, and when you were a teenager, do you think we're in a, in a different time now? Is, uh, it, it seems to me from, from my end that, you know, I mean, to put it bluntly and not flippantly, even if it does sound a little flippant, I'm really, really fucking glad that I'm not a teenager in 2021. Goodness, you could not pay me to be a teenager. I think, from the statistics that I know, I think since the invention of social media, mental health issues have risen by 80%. I think that's the statistic, which is terrifying. And you don't want to be the person that bangs on about the dangers of social media, but you know, it is, it is good and evil in equal measure. And, um, and yeah, I think especially the pandemic I know has had a huge, huge knock-on effect to, to teenagers' mental health. I know the STEM4 website has been getting more hits every day um, because of it. Um, and, 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 you know, I think it's like a two-year wait list to try and actually get proper help on the NHS for a mental health condition. Um, so that's yeah, that's that's why STEM4 is really important. I think the, the work they do, I've seen firsthand how they change people's lives, and that's why I kind of wanted to give money from the book to them because that's how I learned about you know supporting teenagers, I guess, through them. I think the thing that I, has always struck me about it, you know, from my, from the negative experiences that I had at school, they were always at school. And then you, you come home, you close your bedroom door, close your house front door and you'd be at home and you were in, you were in a safe place. And now that safe place doesn't exist because it's, it's right there in front of you on your phone and you can't escape it. Can't escape it, and so it's twenty four seven, and 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 people are so much meaner online, and you know when they can hide behind things, and you know most things that are said on social media, people wouldn't dare say to somebody's face, but because it's you know it's online, then you know the trolls are that's where the trolls hide, and also the whole idea of comparison, you know, people put we always say this like a broken record, but you know people put their best bits online, they don't put their you know they don't put their worst days, and that's how young girls can end up feeling very uh, less than others. Yeah, I, I I can believe that. I can believe that. Well, because uh, you know, as a as a as a forty two year old man who believes himself very sort of wise, if not a little cynical, I sometimes go, "How the fuck there is their life so good?" <laughs> I mean, I do it as well. You know, that's, that's I think that's just the the nature of the beast, sadly. Yeah, I mean, you you obviously you worked in your teenage years. You were working in an industry, uh, not sure on sort of negative elements like rejection, uh, you know, and and just a lot of bullshit. I think 
think the rejection thing is really funny because I think, you know, you end up getting rejected in this industry like twice a week, probably. Um, and I think growing up with it probably made me have a very hard shell to it. Like unless I've got incredibly far for a job that I really want, getting rejected doesn't even sort of cross my mind. But I think as a teenager, like you, it is, there is a whole, I wasn't a particularly like, I was quite a normal teenager. I looked pretty normal. I kind of, you know, I, I wasn't ridiculously pretty or anything like that. So like, I remember, you know, you'd go to auditions and you'd, you'd see very beautiful girls and it is, it is intimidating. And usually they did get cast because that's what was, that's what was wanted. And, you know, it is an industry or was an industry full of bullshit, but, you know, hopefully we're trying to move past that. Um, and, and it probably did, it definitely probably had mental repercussions that I've not thought of yet. I probably should go to therapy and talk about like what I should do. Cause yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a very odd way to grow up hundred percent. So October the 14th uh, yes. instructions for a teenage apocalypse. That's when that comes out. Armageddon. Armageddon. Sorry. I, I'm getting my apocalypses and Armageddon's muddled up. Armageddon. Maybe that's the next one. That'll be the next one. <laughs> And so are you filming uh, the film at the moment or is it done? No, we're doing it. We're literally doing it. Yeah. At the moment. Um, so it's been really, really fun. We've got a great cast of like Amanda Abington and Phil Glenister and kind of just having, it's been really, I've been directing it, which is crazy and bizarre. Oh <laughs> shit. Um, wow. That's something that I never thought. Cause I directed some shorts, but I never wanted to be in the things I directed. That was always a very separate thing. Um, whereas now I'm in the thing I'm directing, which is um, a bit of a, a mind fuck to be quite honest to kind of do both. But it's certainly been a really fun learning experience. And how did you make that? The, 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 obviously, if you, you've done some shorts, did you feel like equipped to, to actually move into a feature from doing the shorts? because this is a hybrid of a play. So we have half of it is feature film scenes. And then the other half is on a, is set on a stage. So it's a kind of like this bizarre viewing experience. And because we'd done the show, because I know that piece so inside out, back to front, that was where I was not kind of intimidated um, by it. I mean, you know, we have a really lovely DP and it's kind of been a great, we put together a great team. Um, and, and then, yeah, I think if it was otherwise, like, I don't think I could have acted and, and, directed something unless I knew it to the depth that I, I know that, that piece, I guess. I guess that must be pretty cool though. So you are uh, the writer, director and actor in a feature in one whole feature. Yeah. And it's a, that sounds like a total ego trip, which is why I <laughs> it so much, which is why I was so against directing it. Cause I was like, I've written it, I'm acting in it and now I'm directing it. Like that just sounds like the very show would feel a bit ill to be quite honest um yeah. <laughs> you own that shit that's amazing yeah, but I, I just I, I cringe actually like i genuinely slightly cringe inside um but we'll, we'll see i don't know ah fingers crossed it all turns out okay and when when is that coming out then is that are you, do you have a release date or are you just sort of seeing how it goes we'll finish by the end of august we'll finish filming um and then yeah watch this space <laughs> Um, Rosie Day, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, thank you for your time and good good luck with your uh, writing, starring in directing gig. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very, very much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, Alex Zane here. 
Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip to the Movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod to find out more.